Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again to China Manufacturing Decoded from the Sophist Group. It's Adrian from the team here today discussing product return rates and how to control them. And I don't have our CEO, Renault, with me today. Actually, I've got a special guest, Andrew Amanovan, who is our head of new product development. How are you doing? Doing well, uh, Adrian. Good to be here again. We're trying to do something exciting. We have an exciting discussion today about return rate. Yeah, return rates. I mean, it's it's not a good thing, and it's something that we're trying to avoid. So you're the man to give us the information about what they are and how we can put in place systems to and processes to avoid them, or what to do if, unfortunately products start getting returned by customers, which we want to avoid. But if it does happen, we need to take action. Before we launch into today's topic, what do you do for the group, please? Well, I am the head of the new product development for Agilian and Sophies. And currently, I am in charge of all the new products that we start with our new customers, basically. And mm. uh, we work with our new customers to make sure that we understand their new product requirements. And then we work with our team on the other side to make their uh, basically product reality. And in doing so, of course, you know, we have a... a a five-phase product development uh, system that uh, really goes through the entire uh, feasibility and uh, assessment of the entire project. And we try to understand what it is that needs to be done and how we're going to achieve that goal. Mm. And and that's in the name of bringing a product to market with the best possible quality, reliability, safety, compliance. Exactly. That really entails that we will not only do the entire design of the product in terms of in terms of mechanical and electrical design and as well as manufacturing and also engineering tests, reliability tests, compliant tests, um, electrostatics tests or any other tests that are required to make sure that this product is going to be um basically built correctly and uh, delivered to end user. Mm. And one of the things that we're trying to avoid is the situation where products do get returned. And there are different reasons, of course, which we'll get into. But to go into today's topic, then, when we talk about a product return rate, could you just give a quick explanation? What are we talking about? Well, we're definitely not talking about high return rate on your investment. Right. Um, <laughs> that that is exactly the opposite of what we are talking about here. We're talking about uh high return product return rate, which is not a good thing when it comes to electronic manufacturing. Ideally, you want a zero return rate, uh, but it's almost impossible in a, in a world that we're living in. And there's always going to be some returns. We're just trying to find a way to minimize that. And and return rate, uh, well, product return really means any product that you sold and somehow for some reason, uh, some or part of the product actually got returned, 
customers didn't like it and yes. basically you're receiving the product back from the customers. Uh, now, return mm -hmm. rate itself means how many percent of those products that you sold is actually coming back to you. Mm. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned a percentage. So basically, we're looking at the units returned divided by the total amount sold and then multiplied by 100. And that's giving you the percentage return rate, right? That is correct. That, that is how you calculate the basic return rate uh, in order to understand exactly you know, what kind of a return you're looking into. Like if you, let's just say an example, for example, if you sold uh, 15,000 units and uh, 5,000 were returned, then you're looking at 33% uh, return rate, which is huge. That's, uh, it's not great. Right. That's one third of your product, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But um, return rates can vary, right? So depending on the product type, we might expect a larger rate than others. You mentioned for today's consumer electronics. And I, and I suppose, you know, for especially for higher quality or more expensive ones, ideally you're looking for as close to zero as possible. But other other products, we might expect a higher return rate, right? Exactly. Like in retail industry, for example, you know, I'm using the name Amazon as an example, but we don't exactly know what return rate they have. But retail industry, they could have return rates as high as 20%. Mm, yeah, okay. Which sounds surprisingly high, but when you consider the enormous numbers of products sold on online marketplaces wherever it might be i guess i guess that uh, that's not uh, actually shouldn't be so surprising it's true it's true i i you know in general uh of course you know from going one market to another you know one market might be okay and acceptable to have high return rate in another market for example if you've got um uh, a very high risk product such as heart monitor, you mm. really don't want any of those to be failing and a high return rate on that could mean a lot of people, you know, dying. And that's not a good thing necessarily. Of course. Okay. So the figure of 20%, let's say it sounds high, but if we now get into the causes of returns, it might be easier to understand why we do get that sort of return rate. Because if you're just thinking, wow, 20% of the products are getting returned because they're defective or, you know, not good quality or something like that. Yeah, that would probably be high, but actually those are not the only reasons. And there are five reasons why consumers usually return, pro well, roughly about five reasons, right, that consumers return products. Yeah, exactly. I would say five main reasons. I mean, there could yeah, yeah, be a yeah. million reasons why people really return yeah. or we get returns. But uh, I would say a number one reason is really customer remorse. Um, how many times you and I in our lifetime, at least maybe once, you have returned a product that just didn't like it for no apparent reason? You know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, so that happens a lot with various customers. Then the next reason is gift return. You know, how many times um, you received uh, a kind of a tie or something for Christmas <sighs> and it just didn't go well with your uh, yeah. suit and you had to go either completely return it or change it. So that happens many mm. times and it's totally normal. And I would say 
those two alone could be uh, 10 to 20% of the returns. But then there is another uh, situation has happened that I have seen in my experience is that uh, data on arrival products uh, leave the production, pass in all the final tests, perfectly operational, no issues whatsoever. And then they arrive at the customer site. And as soon as the u- end user opens it, plugs it in, and it's not working um, mm. for no apparent reason. And we've talked about um, some of the reasons for uh, data on arrival, but a lot of times it's really kind of one of those um, uh, mysteries uh, for many engineering uh, folks. You know, they they try to figure it out, but um, because they haven't done the right due diligence early in the development, and then they end up having uh, all kinds of problems with the DOA. Uh, then, of course, mm-hmm. there's another issue for the reasons is poor quality. And, and, and then, of course, the last one, uh, poor reliability. So if you've got poor uh, quality and poor reliability, then right there, you could cause the other three, right? Customer remote, mm. gift returns, and DOA. So these kind, these five reasons kind of go hand in hand. And it's very important that um, you try to put a bandaid on these right at the beginning. Yes. And you said a couple of interesting things just then. You mentioned because maybe a manufacturer didn't go through enough testing and validation during the product development process, which you mentioned at the top of the show as well. And also, you know, you, you mentioned putting a Band-Aid on these potential causes right at the beginning. So when we talk about the beginning, really we're talking about before the product gets sold. So we're talking about during product development. Absolutely. We're talking about uh, during the MPI process, during the Mm. early product life cycle, when the design phase is going on, the development phase is going on. And and, uh, that's exactly the right time to Mm. make sure you think about return rate. Yeah, so we're going to put in place some steps and actions to put in the groundwork to prevent a high return rate once the product starts getting into the hands of consumers. And once again, uh, you've got a little list of of, uh, points that we should be considering, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there are at least seven items that I think that uh, you could be considering. And, and, you know, Mm. it sounds or seems a lot, but if you have... A, a very well organized team and uh, everyone is following what they're supposed to be doing it's definitely entirely possible to do and and these seven i consider them the seven secrets of uh, making sure that you end up with low return rate uh the okay. number one uh is um having quality design uh, this is absolutely a must if you don't have a very good uh, well-designed product, you're automatically looking to have all kinds of problems um, everywhere in production and, you know, and even before actually goes into uh, the field and also post-production. So quality design is absolutely a must. Yeah, so I heard that uh, they say that 
product design is responsible for around 70% of the costs of the whole project. Yeah, I, I, I would say so because of the fact that basically product design really is the skeleton of the whole what you're trying to achieve in mm. terms of um, quality, operational excellence, and uh, customer requirements. And so there's a lot in there that needs to be right uh, and done right, or else, yeah, you could be having all kinds of, uh, basically, you could have a chain reaction of all kinds of issues. Oh, I like that chain reaction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Okay. The next step will be sourcing quality components. A lot of people may forget uh, and start looking at cheap, low-quality components. But what they don't realize is that, uh, for example, a, a product is a combination of a whole bunch of components. And even one component failing can really hinder the operation of the whole product. You know, it can at least... Uh, minimize its functionality and or uh, make the performance not so appealing. That could be like the 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 least could hurt. But in in the worst case, uh, one component failing can just basically shut down the product. So mm. it is essential that uh, we source uh, quality components that not only meet our design requirements but also exceed uh quality requirements when it comes to design you know if the, if your design says that this is going to be uh operational between let's say 0 and uh, 70 degrees fahrenheit i mean celsius then you want to make sure that uh your component is going to be able to handle uh, a little bit colder than 0 degrees and a little bit warmer than 70 degrees so that if there is a fluctuation just in the temperature alone, then the component can still handle it. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this is kind of connected to the last episode um, with myself and Renault. And we were talking about why you shouldn't buy production parts from Taobao. And it's exactly because you can't guarantee, <laughs> you know, well, you're laughing. And, and, and this is exactly it. Most people would be like, Taobao, no, that's crazy. And and the reason is because you can't guarantee that you're going to have components of the quality that's going to stand up to your demands, basically, to paraphrase it a lot. Um, so, yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the, you know, let's say not so critical designs, maybe, maybe a cheaper part is not a big deal or not a big mm -hmm. problem. But when it comes to critical designs, um, and products that must function uh, exactly, be, you know, right within the specification. Um, it's totally critical to choose components that are within the specification and have gone through thorough quality and reliability testing. And there's even some kind of um, basically documentation, test documentation mm. and approval from the uh, supplier that guarantees the component uh, quality and uh, reliability rate. Yeah, uh, yeah. Otherwise, you've got garbage in and then garbage out. Absolutely, absolutely. There, there's one more okay. other thing that I've seen happen a lot is optimum 
reliability and uh, transportation testing. I think we, mm. or earlier on, we talked about DOA, um, dead on arrival. A lot of times that happens because many companies do pretty much all kinds of tests uh, to uh, bring their product to production. And even at, at production, they and, and sometimes even post-production, they do all kinds of tests. But one test that they always forget to do is called ISTA-2A transportation testing. Yeah, and This is a very, very critical test for many uh, products, especially if they are large and heavy uh, type of products, because you put these products in a carton box and you're trying to ship those to your destination from long distances, like from China to U.S., for example, or Europe. Mm. And it's very likely that if you haven't tested your carton boxes, you have no idea whether those carton boxes can withstand a certain humidity and not fall yeah. apart, or even the weight of the products that are packed in there. And uh, I have seen uh, carton boxes that like just went from one destination to the next. And at the end of this nation, the guy is trying to lift it from the crate. Everything just fell out of the box. Mm. And uh, right there, uh, you have lost some products that were inside a box that need to go through thorough testing before you can actually uh, put them on the shelf. Yeah, that, I mean, those might end up even being scrapped. Uh, and and previously there was nothing wrong with them. So yeah, that, that's a really good point to remember. Focus on the packaging and the transportation testing for sure. Okay. Right. And then of course, you know, we talked about this before. Reliability testing is critical. And if you don't have optimum reliability testing, uh, then you'll, you know, and you miss, for example, uh, how the end user is going to be um, testing or using the product uh, in the worst case situation, uh, there's a, a, a really good chance that uh, the end user is going to uh, basically break the product because they had no idea. They, they're using it the way they think that they should be using, but you didn't test it, so you didn't catch that issue. And then now you're looking into all kinds of high returns. Mm. Yeah, so I think that uh, I would say number four is having quality manufacturing. And this is really critical. Uh, if you've got a manufacturing environment where uh, your equipment are not calibrated properly, they're not uh, tested properly, they're not operating properly, then you're looking at low yield and all kinds of failures at the end of the day. And this could really, um, you know, basically put havoc on your shipment schedules. And uh, when these kinds of situations happen, Sometimes the um, you know not so knowledgeable manufacturing staff they will be just you know close their eyes and pack the product and they just want to ship they just want to get it done and so it's it's very very important that you deal with a manufacturing uh, contract manufacturing that totally has been audited and mm -hmm. is ISO nine thousand certified. And the, basically, they follow uh, the QMS and total quality uh, management system so that uh, uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you, you trust the product coming out of that line. 
Yeah, so the incentive really is on the quality of the product rather than getting paid as soon as possible. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's one more thing that I have noticed that um, some customers maybe lack of knowledge and not um, knowing uh, about how the product should be tested and or maybe maybe they're trying to save on the cost and that's called ongoing reliability testing and or uh, in short ORT ongoing reliability testing mm-hmm. is critical at least the first i would say the first 30 days is a must but first 3 months it's a good thing to do to make sure that your products leave in the production I'm talking about your brand new products, not, um, let's say, a copy product, but I'm talking about brand yeah. new product need to be going through this process. And what this ORT does is that basically screens and checks to make sure that the product that is leaving the production is exactly meeting the same reliability requirements that it was designed for. Mm, okay. There's another couple left. Yeah, yeah. So outgoing uh, QC, sometimes we call it OQC. This is uh, outgoing quality control is uh, one of those important tasks in uh, production line. This is critical uh, for uh, the integrity and quality of the products coming out of the line. Uh, if in some, for some reason, uh, there aren't very good OQC system in place where there are, uh, let's say, quality control teams, quality control processes in place, and there's checks and balances. And sometimes, um, you know, what they do at the end of the line when these products come out of the line, uh, there is an AQL uh, is done, which basically audits uh each batch of the production um, and they want to make sure there's no quality issues before they release that batch to, mm. uh, uh, to be joined uh, to inventory. Yes. It's very, very important. Mm. Yeah. Uh, again, I can see how this fits in with the whole putting in groundwork before uh, products get sold. So that's good. And one last one, number seven. Yeah, I would say number seven is also very important. And that is when you when you are a large manufacturer and you are producing huge amount of products daily, well, you have to store those uh, products somewhere, at least maybe for a, a few days until they are shipped. And, um, and, you know, storage, proper storage of those products going through proper inventory system and uh, humidity and temperature controlled storage system and some Mm -hmm. kind of uh, first in first out. uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that in terms of making sure that, you know, products that get in and get out as soon as possible is is very critical. If you don't have this kind of a uh, storage management system that is uh, taking care of the inventory rotating the products and storing it in a properly ventilated uh dry um, i mean i'm talking uh you know maybe like 50 55 percent humidity and um uh, in a controlled temperature where the temperature is not fluctuating 
then mm. uh, that this is critical as well. Yeah, and where we are in South China, I mean, it, it, and a lot of manufacturing happens there. It can get pretty warm in the summer and pretty humid, right? So if you are, if some of your key components could be damaged by that sort of weather, I guess when you're uh, auditing your potential supplier. This is definitely something that you want to be looking at, but I wonder how many importers actually do know how their suppliers are storing components and and whatnot. You are so right, and that's why many companies hire our staff for doing uh, audit and inspection of their suppliers or their manufacturing environment. Uh, we always get this kind of a uh, let's say order from our customers that hey, you know, we've been dealing with a manufacturer in China and uh, we're worried about how they are running their storage or production can you help us and so we send mm. staff to that manufacturer that are trained well when it comes to manufacturing audit and as well as knowing exactly how the uh, product need to be stored uh, properly so that the uh, uh, how, uh, so that the specification and the um, integrity of the products don't change until they reach the destination. Mm, couldn't agree more. So those seven points you've gone through, basically, if you want to make sure that you're going to get a low return rate on products, it'd be better if you can sort of tick those off with your your own facility or your supplier and make sure that they are actually paying attention to them. So, yeah, good. Now, that was what happens before products get sold, okay? But there's another scenario I wanted to cover with you, Andrew, if I may. And this is kind of the worst case scenario. So let's imagine that we've already developed and produced our product and it's selling on the market. But unfortunately, we start getting quite a few returns coming in. Ideally, we want to avoid this by putting in place the measures that you just discussed, but if this does happen, what can we do? Yeah, good point. So, yeah, ideally, we definitely want to avoid this last area. We want to make sure to save costs because this whole uh, six item that I'm going to mention here are very, very costly, to be honest. And mm. um, pretty much is the reason why uh, you you shouldn't have high return rate. But okay, um, mistakes happen. And once in a while, you do have a product that just didn't do well. And you end up with high product return rate. So okay, what are we going to do about it? Well, the first thing is you definitely need to form a sustaining team. Or in some cases, if the product volume is return rate volume, I'm talking about is very high. Like in the olden days, uh, when you were uh, producing mobile phones, you know, I remember Nokia, for example, had a, a facility that just pretty much it looked like a production environment. I'm talking about millions of phones per year were being returned to that facility, and they actually had to go through pretty much the, in, the entire six steps that I'm talking about here in order to mm-hmm. handle that volume of returns. Uh, now, not every manufacturer is going to go through this, um, but, you know, um, 
even if you have a small volume, some of these definitely is applicable to your situation. So first, uh, definitely as soon as you got these returns, let's, let's say you got several hundred returns or several thousand returns, you need to triage them. Triage means basically let's categorize and sort things out. You know, what are, what is wrong with this product? What is wrong with the other one? And, you know, if you got a lot of the ones that have issues with, uh, uh, for example, you plug it in and it doesn't turn on, let's put all of those together so we can do a kind of a spreadsheet or some um, data in terms of how many of them or what I call Pareto, how many of them have, uh, for example, do not turn on issue uh, how many of them have broken cover issue for example how many of yeah. them uh battery exploded issue so you need to have this kind of a categorizing so that not only you have a data a Pareto, but then when you study the Pareto, you start really really understanding what are they uh for example um 20 percent uh, that cause you know 80 percent of the issues and uh, so do you want to attack those right away? And how you do that is uh, you triage them. You decide that, okay, these are design-related issues. These are manufacturing-related issues. These are component and supplier-related issues and so on. And then you move to creating a, a team, typically called sustainability team. And then these teams usually people or team members from design, team members from quality, team members from supply chain that deal with components and suppliers and so on. And, and manufacturing, of course. And these team members each will take a piece of the, uh, the task from this uh, return rate and they go and try and attack it and work together and come back to a meeting and, and then and, and decide and determine what actions they uh, recommend to take in order to be able to put a Band-Aid on this return rate. Um, then the next thing that uh, happens after this or what I recommend that needs to be done is, mm-hmm. um, okay, you, you, you did the triage and you, you put together a sustainability team and everyone uh, from that team uh, came back with uh, contributions to what needs to be done to put a bandaid. Now you need to gather all this fixes and uh, create a uh, manufacturing lessons learned or, or basically a lessons learned database really. And uh, the benefits of this lessons learned database is enormous. A lot of companies fail to do this, but really it's, um, it's a combination of history of, all kinds of things that happened. You know, you could call it a design history file. There are related design, the history of related related issues with, with design, uh, manufacturing related history issues, uh, component related, it's all in there. And if hmm. you're creating a brand new product and all of a sudden you end up having um, an issue, if you go back to the lessons learned database, most likely you'll find the fix that actually fixed that. And or you'll know that, okay, we bought this component again and we shouldn't because it caused this problem from this supplier. So yeah, 
history uh, lessons learned uh, history database is, is critical. And then the next step uh, that I think everyone should do at this uh, stage to prevent high return rate is um, uh, once you've done all this, you need to make a new build. You need to um, put all the fixes and then go and produce again. And then in in doing this, you need to monitor, okay, were, were those fixes all done and everything's passing? And then you mm-hmm. need to ship this product, the last item. You need to ship this product and you need to monitor the field returns again and see, okay, we had, let's say the month of September, we had um, 20% return. What about September and then October? Do we have mm-hmm. a lower return rate in October? What about November? What about December? And if you see the return rate is the trending is going down, then it's a good it's a good sign. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think what came to my mind when listening to you just then was maybe the example of cars, because I guess we've all been affected by car recalls during you know the years that 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 uh, myself or a lot of the listeners have owned cars. I've had a couple of cars that had to go into the garage to have fixes done to them. And that would have been because the manufacturer, they've got this kind of system in place. They are updating their lessons learned database and they're saying, well, no, the the fuel pump, for example, that one was not working well. So we've got to get these cars in, replace the fuel pump. And in future, you know, on the next iteration of the model or whatever, we'll be using a different kind of fuel pump to solve the issue. You know, does that sort of ring true to you? Yeah, it does. Uh, when it comes to <laughs> car manufacturing and car reliability, or basically return, uh, I think they call it recall, right? A huge mm-hmm. recall. What comes to my mind that I can never forget was the airbag failures that happened a, a few years back. I don't remember. I don't re- know the name of the actual manufacturer, but it was a Japanese manuf- a supplier of a component for the airbag that pretty much was in every single car in the world. Mm. And uh, a lot of the companies didn't know of the, the problem with this uh, airbag. So what would really happen? And maybe you can research that later and let me, let me know. So the, the problem was that when there was an accident and the airbag actually deflated, then, um, I mean, inflated, pardon me, and then a piece of that metal would actually break loose and hit people in the brain and they in the face yeah. or head and actually kill them. It was a serious, serious problem. Of course, you know, you don't wish to be in an accident, but it does happen. And airbags supposed to be uh, protecting you from hitting your head, uh, you know, in the steering wheel or something. But here it is. Uh, the airbag was actually kill- killing people. This this was a very, very serious um issue that I never forget. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When it came to recalls. And I think mm. that we have seen, um, I can also recall another one. I think it was uh, one of the tire manufacturers. I, I'm not sure which one it was that mm. um, the tires actually uh, were not reliable. And uh, you can just imagine you're going, you know, um, high speed and all of a sudden your, your tire explodes. Um, and mm. people lose control, of course, you know, and uh, a lot of fatalities happen because of that. So, oh, yeah. yeah, that was a major recall as well. 
Yeah, those are some good examples. I'll try and uh, find a link to the Japanese airbag manufacturer. I've actually heard of that that case myself. Yeah, I think it, maybe it was like in the nineties or something, but I, I don't yes. I don't recall right now. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'll add a link to the show notes. I mean, a good note to to end on is talking about reliability, which is exactly what you've been doing. And you know, for the Sophie's group, you are Mister Reliability. So I'm not surprised that that word has come up a lot during this particular podcast episode uh, product reliability has got such a lot to do with returns doesn't it and and a lot of the things that you've spoken about yeah also quality too of course but it all comes back to that new product introduction process it does it does i think that um at the end of the day all of it comes back to a good design good testing and uh, good manufacturing and uh, but you can't really go to uh, you know manufacturing if you haven't done a good design and you can't really have a good design and good manufacturing if you don't have good testing to identify what are the things that are going wrong so reliability is pretty Mm. much crucial during the new product development and and that is one of the things that we emphasize in uh, in agilian uh, manufacturing so we make sure uh, in agilian tech that all the uh, products that we design they go through um, first of course um, engineering evaluation of the design itself uh, we do through sorrow the effects but it, as well as you know uh, sometimes even test the components if necessary. And then mm-hmm. uh, we go through uh, a very um, well-optimized, well-designed um, reliability test plan that actually mimics the user environment. But even more than that, uh, we're talking about worst-case scenario of how the user will be using that product. And then we try to find those issues early in the design and development and fix those and then so that our products will be uh, very reliable at the end. Yeah, and not being returned. <laughs> and not being returned, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the name of the game. Great. Right. So there you have it. That's been a, a really interesting introduction to what return rates are, product return rates, uh, how we sort of control them before products go into mass production and then get into consumers' hands. And also what to do if the worst does happen and your products start getting returned uh, and, you know, starting with triaging and finding out what's going on and then putting a fix in place uh, and uh, and then going from there with monitoring and seeing if you're actually successful. So, yeah, really interesting, Andrew. I've really loved uh, doing this particular recording with you. Let's get you back on soon. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, let's do it again. Great. Well, and to all the listeners, thanks for tuning in once again. More from myself, Renault and Andrew and uh, other special guests, I'm sure, soon. So we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care, Adrian. Thanks again for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Sophie's Group. We're on a mission to provide you with everything you need to manufacture effectively in Asia, including inspections, auditing, new product development support, contract manufacturing, 3PL warehousing and fulfillment, and much, much more across Asia's key manufacturing areas. Visit us at sofeast.com, that's S-O-F-E-A-S-T.com, to learn more and get help. 
If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do rate, review and share because it will really help others discover us too.